Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres. This is episode 102 of Haunted Muse, and it features the latest installment of my third novel, Skeleton's Blood. Okay, so here we go. Skeleton's Blood, Chapter 28. Following afternoon, sitting up in the Northlight Observatory, Hazel Goodnight and Nick Gallinus looked back and forth from Nick's laptop screen on the old keeper's desk to the windows facing southward. Nick had spent most of the day hanging on every word that Colton spoke during the live-streamed Block Island Summit proceedings, muttering under his breath about the details of the AHS rollout that Colton should have stated differently. Nick occasionally broke pattern by grumbling about being stuck up in the lighthouse, so far away from anything important that was going on. I don't understand why all of us should be the only one down there instead of me. Why couldn't it have been both of us? She doesn't have the slightest clue about how to cue Colton for responses during Q&A. Maybe because you don't have three-inch fangs to protect herself would be my best guess, replied Hazel absently. She was tired of hearing Nick complain. Colton possibly making some embarrassing gaffe is the least of anyone's worries right now, she said. Having less frame of reference for the political underpinning of the meeting, Hazel was more intrigued by the steady stream of peelers that kept straggling down Corneck Road. Focusing in on them closely, she could see that they were wet and bedraggled looking. In the stout December wind, their wet clothes were quickly stiffening into ice. Why are they all wet and frosty like that? Hazel asked, putting down her binoculars. Did they swim over from the mainland or something? I wouldn't think that they had the coordination to swim, given how slowly they usually move. Look! Hazel thrust the binoculars between Nick's face and the screen. He took them grudgingly. That bastard Prine. He said all he wanted to say this morning and then cut out during the afternoon debate like he'd dropped the mic, Nick blew out in disgust. Typical. Doctors and their egos. He looks like death warmed over when he's on camera, too crusty old buzzard. What am I supposed to be looking at again? The peelers, Hazel pointed down the southbound road. I haven't seen any for days, and now look how many of them there are. They look even worse than usual, too, like they went swimming and the wind is freezing their wet clothes onto them. In this weather? Swimming? That's impossible, Nick scoffed readjusting the binoculars for a better view of the swarms of peelers loping along on bloody feet through the snow, leaving ribbons of red trailing behind them. Those down there look like they have to be in the final stage. There's no way they could run without feeling the cold otherwise. They'd freeze to death. Just then, Hazel looked skyward. She couldn't believe it. There was the same old buzzard that she'd seen in Providence. It was unmistakable this time, with the ragged ends of its enormous black wings silhouetted against the pale gray gathering snow clouds. She'd felt certain that she'd seen him at least three, maybe four times now. At the airport? Then with that poor cat. Ugh. Perhaps at the train station, and then definitely on the bus. Now, here he was again. Like he was following her. Crusty old buzzard. Then... Oh, oh dear God, why didn't I think of that? Hazel exclaimed. What? Nick asked, fumbling with the binoculars, almost dropping them. 
You, you have to call Colton right now, Hazel gasped. I, I think I know what the peelers are doing. She pointed through the observatory window at the massive black bird disappearing in the distance. They're following him. Prime, look! Nick pulled up the binoculars again. As he watched, the lone buzzard circles crept steadily southward, right along the peeler's path. The hairs on the back of Nick's neck pricked up. It's weird that they're staying on the main street right out there in broad daylight. I've never seen any behave that way before, not en masse, and certainly not running or trying to. Prine is a vampire, Hazel explained, trying to calm the trembling in her voice as she went into professor mode. According to folklore, vampires can transform into all sorts of things. Bats, wolves, pigs, Hazel pointed out the window, and buzzards. That must be what Prine's transformation animal is, a, a, a buzzard. It's a perfect cover. Most people look away when they see a buzzard, pushing it out of their mind because they're so grotesque. I did it myself when I saw him eating that poor cat. I'm almost positive, though, that I've seen that same buzzard several times since I arrived in Providence. What's even stranger, the more I've seen of him, the less I've seen of the peelers. And this must explain why. Prine was hurting them to use as reinforcements. There's only one main road down to Block Island Harbor. If anyone tries to flee after he starts whatever his plans are with his thralls, once everyone's on board the ship, then they'll have to get through hundreds, perhaps thousands of peelers. Prine has created a walking human zombie shield. Nick was listening to her, but he'd already pressed send on his phone. He reached the voicemail on Colton's personal cell, so he tried the official number. After a dozen rings, Nick pressed end and turned back to the laptop screen. Through the live camera feed time delay, Nick saw Colton reach into his pocket to stop stop it from vibrating. Christ, he's already on the podium. That's why he's not answering. What are we going to do? Should we drive down there? Nick asked. Hazel shook her head. We won't be able to get through the crowd of peelers. They're all over the road. She thought for a moment. What we really need is someone who can fly. Hazel started waving her arms at the ceiling. Edith! Howard! Nathaniel! Can any of you hear me? A loud crack split the air of the observatory, shaking the old windows in their panes. Why does everyone always call the ghosts first? Catherine asked, calmly indignant. It's not like they can do anything or have anywhere near the power that I... Oh! Oh, Catherine, I'm so sorry, Hazel apologized. Thank you. Thank you for coming, she ran to the window. You've got to go and warn Donovan and the others. Do you see that old buzzard there? Catherine nodded. Well, that's not just any buzzard. That's Prime making himself to look like a buzzard. He's enthralled the peelers to follow him somehow so that they'll block the road or maybe even rush the ship. Catherine studied the line of peelers straggling up the street. We can't tip Prine off too soon, though, that we know, or he might direct them to charge early. That would ruin everything. Catherine favored Hazel and Nick with a twist of a smile. One of the greatest conveniences of being a witch, however, is the ability to travel unseen. Without saying another word, Catherine disappeared with a second window-rattling crack of the air. 
Moments later, Catherine reappeared in the old harbor, just as the crowd was applauding the end of President Colton Merritt's speech. Noticing her immediately, all of us stepped away from her position as Colton descended the platform. Moving out from underneath the shade of the pavilion, she pulled up her hood and muffler, putting on dark glasses to shield herself completely from the final weak rays of the winter sun. "'Why are you here?' Alva asked. "'What's happened?' Hazel has observed that Prine's gathering peelers to block the road. She's afraid he might push them to rush the ship. Catherine scanned the swiftly darkening early evening sky. The snow clouds had grown thicker and more ominous as the gathering storm moved inward from the ocean. I can't see him at the moment, but he's up there somewhere. He's transformed himself into a buzzard. I was wondering what all the commotion was about from the crowd in the back. Alva tapped the earpiece encircling her ear. Police keep saying that there are protesters against the health service, probably instructed not to cause a scene, because how would it look if police killed a bunch of indigent people in need of medical mm -hmm. care on a live television broadcast celebrating free medicine? Alva rolled her eyes. It's always something political, never the actual truth. Ugh. I'll tell Colton, and you go on to warn Donovan. In all likelihood, it won't cause any alteration to our plans, just so long as they don't keep moving. But with Prime, you never know. Catherine had found Dawn next, down in the hold of the ship, sleeves rolled up, checking the relay wires. That goddamned old devil, Donovan spat, a buzzard, half-fits. I always wondered what his animal form might be, or if he even had one. But it's no matter, Donovan patted the inside of the hull. There's enough here to blow ten thousand peelers sky-high even though the ship couldn't hold that many. It would sink. Digging around under his explosives vest, Donovan produced his little gold snuff box. How long are we from sunset? We've been down here all day. Glancing around the pitch blackness of the otherwise empty hull, Catherine could make out four sets of green, glowing eyes. None of them stirred. It's almost here, Catherine said. The sun was setting as I came in. It looks like a snowstorm's blowing up with it, coming in pretty fast from the east. Should arrive any moment now that it's dark. Excellent, Donovan replied, snorting a pinch of snuff. I've found that a lot of moisture in the air has an occluding effect on thralls, makes them confused, so that they can't hear their masters clearly. Which is precisely what we want, mass confusion. Outside the ship, another loud cheer went up. They're about to board. I need to go, Catherine said. Goodbye, darling, she whispered into the shadows. Goodbye, my love, Kobe whispered back. Then, with a crack, Catherine was gone. Back above decks, Colton and Alva were the last to board, as the crowd of medical community dignitaries looked around puzzled at the sound of what seemed to be a timber breaking. Their irises were white and milky, like someone with cataracts. When Colton had mentioned noticing this to Alva during a break between meetings, she had told him that this was one of the most telltale signs a person had started to go under the thrall of a vampire. They could no longer see anything for themselves. Old ships! <laughs> Alva gave her polite society laugh to those around her, trying to distract attention away from the sound. <laughs> Thank God they don't make them like this anymore. Distracted, Alva took a wrong step and caught the thin, high heel of her shoe in the decking. Dozens of flashbulbs went off as Colton offered his arm to steady her. 
How do fashionable women these days walk without seriously injuring themselves? Alva hissed under her breath. I almost killed myself back there on those cobblestones. It's been all downhill since the tea strap, I tell you. How can you talk about fashion now? Colton hissed, as the ground crew pulled the gangplank away from the ship. He lurched as the vessel began to move away from the shore. I'm as nervous as a cat. What was that sound? Before Alva could answer, the flashbulbs began to strobe again from the shore, reflecting off the snow in a dazzling array of rainbow colors. Only this time, they weren't taking pictures of President Merritt's efforts at being a gentleman. Following their pointing fingers out into the Atlantic, Alva saw what they meant and froze. Through the front edge of snowflakes falling to signal the approaching storm came an old rigged sailing ship. Moving faster than any natural ship could sail, it radiated with incandescent light. As the ship materialized out of the darkness, a rush of ice-cold wind broke over them like a wave, bringing with it a cloudburst of snow. Women shrieked and grabbed their hats, and the men swore. Within seconds, the eerie vessel had pulled alongside them, and all that could see its flag. A white skeleton on a field of black, stabbing a bleeding heart with a spear. The skeleton's blood, Alva yelled, grabbing Colton by the arm and pushing him behind her, his back to the mast. It's Captain Lowe. Get ready. Here they come. No sooner than Alva had spoken than Lowe's undead pirates began pouring over the side of the ship in a swarm. They moved like snakes, slithering up and over the railing on their bellies. Swathed still in their death attire, their bony ribcages protruded from rotted shirts and coats, yet each one carried a long, curved, silver blade firmly gripped in one gloved hand. Springing up and pouncing from person to person, the pirates began to bite and slash their way across the deck as the terrified thralls, lacking direction, screamed and ran. "'Put your arms around my neck,' Alva commanded. Merritt, horror-stricken, obeyed. She shot straight up in the air beside the mainmast and deposited him in the crow's nest. Hovering in the air beside him, Alva scanned the blackened horizon. Down there, Merritt pointed toward the bow of the ship. Look! Just above the bowsprit, a bent figure in a long, dark cloak appeared out of thin air. Raising his arms as if he were about to start a race, the thralls halted immediately and turned to face him. Bringing his arms down sent the thralls into a frenzy as they rushed the pirates, their jaws snapping and biting. Merritt was astonished as the men and women whom he'd just spent the entire day speaking with rapidly devolved into a pack of rabid dogs. Prine cackled as his long, gray, straggling hair blew back from his face and the stout wind whipped his black cloak back like a flag. Beckoning toward the harbor with his left arm, the ship listed to the side. As pirates and thralls pitched to the deck, the first hordes of peelers began scrambling over the ship's port rail. "'We're going to flip over!' Merritt yelled, grabbing hold of the mainmast. Then, with a great boom, the ship pitched over starboard, slinging everyone back in the opposite direction. "'No!' Alva cried. "'Look there! It's him!' Standing on the rail was Captain Ned Lowe. Beside him was Charles Harris, and hovering in the air behind, "'Dear God!' Merritt exclaimed, clinging tighter to the mast. "'It's Jane and Beth!' Their normally bright golden hair was bedraggled as trampled wheat, and it whipped in the wind around their faces. Their once beautiful features twisted with hatred, and their eyes glowed a menacing, hungry green. 
Both women had been changed from the hospital gowns in which Merritt had last seen them into long, full-skirted dresses with black lace bodices. Hold on to me, Alva called. We're going up again. Hearing their names over the wailing of the storm, both vampires cocked their heads toward the crow's nest. Seeing Alva carrying Colton into the sky, they loosed a series of piercing shrieks. Then they were in the air, hurtling skyward, bearing down upon Alva and Colton. At about twenty feet in the air, however, they jerked backward, crashing hard into the deck below. Instantly, Beatrice and Elizabeth sprang upon them, tearing into the newer, less experienced vampires. It was over in seconds. Their bodies collapsed instantly to dust. Colton buried his face into Alva's neck, willing himself not to see, as Alva struggled to hold position in the howling wind. Captain Lowe roared in pain and leapt off the rail, with Charles Harris close behind. Sensing their peril, Beatrice and Elizabeth turned to engage. Swifter than sight could follow, Kobe and Alonzo were at their sides. They tore into each other, yet soon it was clear the pirates were better swordsmen. Slashing faster and faster, within moments they'd cornered all four in a row against the stern. Suddenly, a loud crack cut through the air again like a thunderbolt, and an otherworldly gale slammed into Alva and Colton. They tumbled through the air uncontrollably, ricocheted off the straining mainsail, and hit the deck. Colton swore and clutched his knee. Alva scrambled to his side. Dragging him down into the hull, she swung her silver blade wildly in a circle, daring anyone to come near. Following the blast, the air went unnaturally still, as if they were in the eye of a hurricane. Yet the tension was palpable. "'What was that?' Colton asked through clenched teeth as he leaned into Alva, struggling to find his footing on the ladder without putting pressure on his throbbing leg. He didn't want to look down at it, fearing he might see his tibia sticking out of the fabric. "'It was Catherine,' Alva replied. "'She can command the wind. It knocked Prine out of position. I saw him flying past us as we fell.' probably saw that Kobe and the others were in trouble and decided it was best to cause a distraction. Once below decks, they found Donovan in a frenzy. Go check the watering leading out again. Something's got to have torn loose, he barked at Howard, who obeyed without his characteristic grousing. He's been trying to get the detonator to start ever since I relayed the message to him that Lowe was aboard, but it's not working, whispered Edith to Alva. Donovan frowned down at the snarl of wires as Colton hobbled over for a closer look. These wires aren't insulated, Colton said, inspecting them. Are just the ends down here like this? Because if not, all the snow could have caused a short somewhere above decks. Moisture does that. It used to happen with old cars and my dad when we worked on them all the time. Donovan tossed his head from side to side, tearing at his hair. I thought so. But perhaps you're right. They could have gotten too damp at some point, but I, I don't know, I don't know. I'm not an expert. The vampire's face screwed into a painful grimace. He mopped the bloody sweat from his brow and straightened his vest of dynamite. You all need to get clear of here. Send word by Edith when all of our seeds are out of the way and I'll go ahead and light it up. Donovan, no, Alva implored. You, you can't. It doesn't have to end this way. Why the devil not? Donovan snapped. I'm the leader of this seed, and I knew the risk was there when I set this trap. Why else would I have been wearing this? He gestured down at the vest of dynamite covering his chest. I can't let them get away, not again, after all this time. But what if there's another way? Colton asked. Mm -hmm. What if... 
He shuffled over to Donovan, wincing with each step, as he took the end of one of the Velcro straps encircling his torso. What if we could wrap these around it somehow, and then wrap something else around that that was waterproof, create a tight enough bundle so that I could throw it, and then light the fuse? It would just have to explode when it hit the deck to set off a chain reaction, right? Then it wouldn't matter how wet the wires were above the decks. Colton peered around the dark hold at the mess of wiring and spent rolls of duct tape that littered the floor and shuffled out of his weatherproof coat. How much tape and fuse do you have left? Colton asked, sitting down painfully on the floor. Give it to me, now. This is crazy, Edith exclaimed as Alva hurried off to gather the materials. Crazy look of fox, Donovan grinned, his green eyes sparkling at Colton with admiration. He took off the vest, strapping the Velcro around it tightly. Then he gave it to Colton, who swaddled it again in his jacket, tighter and tighter still, tucking the sleeves into the ends until it was roughly the shape of a football, but about twice as big around. How far do you reckon you can throw that thing? Well, I once won the Heisman Trophy, Colton replied. Hopefully I can be as good once as I ever was. But just in case, it might help to have a little extra momentum behind it. How fast can you fly? In this case, Donovan said, as fast as you need me to. Why? Because I'm going to need you to carry me up as high as you can and then drop me. What? Alva croaked, spilling her armful of supplies to the floor. Colton reached over to grab a roll of duct tape and began wrapping the ball of dynamite tighter still as he spoke. The force of gravity makes things fall more rapidly until they hit their point of impact. Thus, if I throw this thing as hard as I can, and I am also falling at the same time, it should hit twice as hard. Even if I can't make it go exactly through that hole, Colton pointed to the ladder opening, which I'm hoping for, because it will buy us another second or two, the impact should be enough to trigger the chain reaction. All that I need from the two of you he gestured at all Van Donovan, is to get me up high enough in the right position and then let go. Watch for when I release it and then swoop back in to carry me away as fast as you can. They all stared at Colton in stark disbelief. What? I graduated from college. I took physics. Why do you all look so surprised? But what if you miss? Edith worried. He won't, Donovan said. Neither will we. Alva echoed. All right, then, said Colton, struggling to his feet with a bundle of dynamite clutched to his chest. We'll start by getting me up that ladder. I don't think I can walk like this. Once again outside, the two vampires locked Colton around each elbow between them as they sailed skyward. Colton faced back down toward the ship, trying to calculate position. Although they could hear the storm winds whistling around them, the air directly encircling the ship remained deadly calm. There they go, Alva said, as the trio rose higher and higher. Above them, Mercy and Phoenix streaked across the sky one after another in pursuit of Prime. Nathaniel, the ghost, too, followed. The ancient vampire darted in pass as jagged as lightning away from them as he tried to stay close enough to continue directing his thralls. Colton spotted them too. Do you think they'll catch Prime? I don't know, replied Donovan. The plan was to sneak up behind and stab him on the deck, but it's clear that's fallen apart. 
At least they're up high enough that the blast radius will miss them. I told them to break away starboard as fast as they could whenever they saw Colton drop, Edith said. And I got to the girls, too, so they know to be watching. But I couldn't find Kobe or Alonzo anywhere. The last that B and Liz saw, they were with Catherine, fighting against Lowe and Harris. Maybe they've already killed them and are all together somewhere, Alva answered, although she and Donovan exchanged doubtful looks. Here, Colton stated. They were several hundred feet above the ship. Beneath them, chaos reigned as peelers, thralls, and vampires continued to spar and wrestle. It was impossible to tell which faction had the upper hand, if any. Right over the scuttle, the vampires pulled up and turned around so that all three were facing back toward the ship. They were at the very top of the bubble of stillness that Catherine's spell had cast beneath the storm. Colton shifted the rolled bundle of dynamite around to a more comfortable grip. When I count three, drop me, but follow close behind. As you see me release it, grab a hold. Ready? They nodded. All right. Now, the vampires let go. Twisting himself around in the air, Colton made his body into a spear as he went into a free fall. One second, then two, ticked by as the deck of the ship came closer with impending speed. Calculating the distance while holding his breath, Colton drew back his right arm. At about 80 yards away, he let it fly, watching the bomb spiral downward right into the open mouth of the scuttle. As the charge went off, Alva slammed into Colton's side with a force that stole all of his breath. When the second, larger explosion blew, it knocked him out completely. This is the end of Chapter 28. Tune in next week for the next episode of Skeleton's Blood, here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield, reminding you to remain ever watchful, because you never can tell. Someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you. Mm-hmm.